Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Yeah. Luke Stutters. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top Head Devs, and we have a special guest that is Lucas. I totally forgot how to say it. Lichus. Is that what you said? Lichus. Yeah. All right. Do you want to introduce yourself? Let everybody know who you are and why you're world famous? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been coding Ruby for maybe 15, 15 years or so, freelancing now. Did a bit of DevOps and security for a while there and then back to Ruby. And for the past couple of years, as a side project, I was working on some low-code platform in Ruby that does bidirectional code generation. And I open-sourced some of that and wrote about it, which is how I ended up here. Cool. Don't you wish that Rails came with a component library that would plug in the widgets, charts, graphs, and other things you need to build a solid user interface? And wouldn't it be even better if it looked great and was easy to integrate? Well, I have great news, folks. I found it. Avo provides all these things along with authentication, advanced search, menu editors, grid views, and a ton more. Plus, there's an open source version that gives a ton of stuff for free. Just go to avo.cool, that's A-V-O dot C-O-O-L, to see what they offer and give it a try. I'm so excited to have an option that works out of the box, doing more than the basic CRUD operations, and I'm thrilled that I don't have to buy an admin theme and then convert their stuff to Rails views. This is built for Rails by a Rails developer, and it's awesome. Go check it out at avo.cool. Yeah, I was looking at the article, and it it was really interesting just to kind of see how some of that came together. I'm imagining writing something like this is a little bit more involved than just I guess, translating strings. <laughs> yeah, the, the practical way to do it, if you're just going to, if, if you're trying to go for like 80% of the functionality, will probably be regular expressions. Right. But we were a little obsessive about getting it completely right. So we're parsing all the all the code into ASTs and then comparing those and walking the trees. And there's a bunch of logic involved there. Uh, right. But the end result is that you specify a bunch of Ruby code and any tokens that you want to interpolate, you use the word placeholder. So if you had placeholder between quotes, that would be a string. And then there will be a method that corresponds to it. We'll grab the value from the initial input or from the, uh, if you're going the other way, from the output. Cool. Well, let's let's back up for just a second and talk about what exactly we're talking about here. Because I'm looking at your article. It's got this visual representation here. But the podcast, we don't really share screens or show code. So, and then most of our audience is audio only. So do you want to explain what you mean by bi-directional code generation? Like what it what it is and then how, how you're using it, why somebody would ever want to do this? Yes, definitely. All right. So let's say that you have a Rails scaffold. You scaffold something in the background. Rails will use an ERB template to generate your code. So if you're generating an empty model, let's say a model called book, it will basically run an ERB template with a value book, and then it will output a little bit of code, like class book inherits from application record, etc. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. We've been using Rails scaffolds forever, and they work. Uh, but usually, when you're closer to the end of a project or halfway through, the scaffolds are not very handy because you, you're basically overwriting your files every time. And since you usually have a bunch of custom methods and code in there, you can't overwrite them, so you can't use the scaffold over and over again. If you wanted to add a a relation to your book model, you can use the scaffold for that, right? Mm -hmm. So what this does, it's sort of like an ERB template, but you define it a little bit differently. 
uh, a little more met a little more metadata and you can also run it in the opposite direction so you can take some code like a generated model run it through this thing and it will come back into the initial value called book and if you've added some custom code in the meantime it will put that custom code in in a string in the appropriate location and so that way if you then wanted to add a relation or a validation or whatever else is auto-generated you could do so later on throughout the project provided that the structure of the model that people have modified is close enough to the initial template. So it depends on how well you define your template, but basically you can use it throughout the project. So then the question on why would you do this? For us, it was that we were building a low-code platform. We wanted people who do not have technical skills to be able to work on a code base alongside people who can actually write code. Mm. And to do that, you need to go both ways. But that's not the only use case. Uh, you could use it to make like a super fancy version of scaffolds, rail scaffolds. You could maybe use it for upgrading a code base by having uh, templates for the old and the new version. Really, I'm sure there's more use cases. I haven't thought of all of them yet, but yeah. Yeah, you know, Lucas, this, this just reminded me of the, uh, you know, what got me into Rails, which was, you know, DHH's 10-minute blog or whatever it was. Whoops! You know, creates, creates a blog <laughs> and uh, in 10 minutes it's made, right? <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, from your example in the with this visual Rails editor that you made with this, it almost looks like you could just create that same thing kind of in a in less than a minute. <laughs> can we can we talk more about the visual Rails editor because it gives so much context to what this is? And I feel like this was the kind of genesis of this whole project. Am I correct? Yeah, that's correct. So it's a visual Rails editor. Well. It's a prototype, very rough, basic prototype. And if you if you try to use it properly, it'll it'll break pretty quickly because you know prototype. But yeah, you just click, you generate an app, and in the background, it will generate a Rails app for you. You, I think it's, there's a button called Add Model or some or Add Scaffold or something. You can add the fields, and in the background, it'll generate the migrations. Uh, it'll add validations, I think. Uh, but it also generate a routes and controllers and views. And the views is the part where we try to really demonstrate the, the part where you can uh, work together with developers. So um, you can add a title and it'll generate an H1 tag, I think. You can add a paragraph and it'll generate a P tag. But if you then go to the code and open it with a, an actual editor, like uh, Sublime or VI or whatever, uh, and edit it, then those changes will be picked back up by the visual editor. Right, and this is a very common scenario. This is something I've kind of worked with time and time again, where you're collaborating with a colleague who cannot read the code, but, you know, they're not dumb. They can do useful work, right? So you are kind of got this back and forth where they're fleshing out the business model and you're diving in and filling in the nitty-gritty. But the nice thing about this video, which is linked at the start of the article, is it's saying, well, you can all kind of live in the same space here. And instead of kind of having a kind of really strict handoff, you can both kind of coexist in the same tooling. So people who don't have a lot of kind of programming knowledge can come in and say, well, that needs to be that aspect of that. And then you can come in and kind of fill in the code itself all within the same tool. And is, is that fair to say that's the concept? Yes, absolutely. The plan was is to integrate with Git as well so that uh, someone who's not very technical but knows what they want can build all the easier features and then generate a pull request and a developer can kind of go over that and make sure that it works with the rest of the code. So, yeah, yeah, that, that was the, uh, the idea. 
we started on so that. Like, like, yeah. like Valentina was saying, I was watching that video. I was like, that's pretty cool. That is, that is a pretty cool thing, right? I thought it was I, I cool. I mean, <laughs> right? I was, I was, I was like, oh, oh, I, I want to see more of this. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, um, I've got a follow-up to this cool nature. Because, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> similar to how I saw DHH's first, like, 10-minute blog, was a huge amount of pain following that and then trying to add on to it without knowing any rails, as an example. Mm-hmm. Right. Like what (laughs) (laughs) what what is that ramp up time like using Monocle as an example, as far as these customizations? So you comment on kind of, well, sometimes developers need to make customizations to it and it allows that bidirectionality uh, to coexist. So how much integration and kind of flexibility is there? with that customization, right? Like, So the code itself, it allows for a lot of flexibility, but the monocles that we've built are pretty basic. So in practice, we'd have to see how how well it works, uh, if, if I'm completely honest, of course. I, I think that it should be possible to write really complex ones with it. You can also nest them and uh, use different versions so that if you have different uh, paradigms in Rails that kind of lead to the same thing, yeah, you could have different monocles for those paradigms. But yeah, at some point, I'm, I'm guessing it will break or the amount of effort to make it work might not be worth it. The, the use case that I had in mind was for all of the straightforward features, making this table editable, adding some validations, just the kind of stuff that you tend to make with a no-code platform for that stuff to work. And when it goes way beyond that, I think probably a coder is going to step in anyway. And what I've focused on most in that for that case is for the monocle system to break gracefully so that most of it, most of the code base can still be parsed just this tiny bit can't. That was kind of the intention there. So I'd love to take a just another step back again and kind of just walk through how everything works, right? Because it is hard to visualize without seeing it initially, right? Because what, what you're doing ultimately is, is having some in- intermediary program write the program. For, right. So let's walk through just like how that happens, right? Like, because there are a lot of steps that happen, but are very basic concepts that I think we can tie a lot of stuff to, right? So, like, if you could just walk through kind of how, where it starts and where it, and it finishes, and then even the cycle back, right? Since it's bi directional. Yeah. So, for generation, the monocles themselves, you define them in a DSL. But they're basically classes. Each each monocle has a, has one or more snippets with one root snippet. So those snippets are also classes or objects, I guess. So a snippet contains the actual code snippet that you're trying to generate or parse. And it contains a bunch of methods for retrieving values or for figuring out if when you're parsing if something matches or not. And those methods, for the common cases, you, they're generated through a DSL to make it a little more uh, palatable. So when you're generating, generating, what happens is you start with the root snippet of whatever monocle you're trying to generate, and we basically walk the AST of that code and rewrite all of the placeholders. So, yeah, a little bit of extra context. There's a, a gem called Parser by made by White Quark. I, I'm not sure what his actual name is, but... Uh, so that one includes a rewriter. So that's a thing that can walk an entire AST and uh, you can define custom logic for changing parts of the AST and then writing out code again. So on we the, looked into that. 
On the topic of the AST, did you consider the new uh, Ruby syntax tree? Yeah, so we started like five, six years back. And back then, Parser was the really the only game for doing fancy stuff. And then by the time that the newer libraries came out, we kind of looked at them. But we were very familiar with Parser and kind of had a lot of code snippets hooking into it. And we were still in the making an MVP or a prototype phase. So decided to stick with that. I'm, I'm curious to see what's going to happen with it, though. If at some point, would you still need the Parser gem or external gems? Or will the internal tools just be complete? Hopefully just complete. <laughs> One less thing to bolt in, right? Yeah, right. Must I must jump in here and say that we're not talking about the modicle gem on GitHub uh, on, on Ruby Gem. So if you do gem install modicle, you are not going to get this. Correct. That's right. Yeah. So this leads straight in to my real or fake gem challenge, which is a segment of the show <laughs> I've invented just for this show, right? <laughs> and the aim of the game is to tell without looking, so no googling allowed. Is this a real gem? Or a fake gem that Luke's invented. So we'll start easy, right? Is there a real gem called Unicorn? Yes. Yes. Okay, it easy one. Wet, but I think. It does indeed. But is there a real gem called Bigfoot? I don't I'm know. going to guess yes. going to need a yes or a no. There is now. Is, is Bigfoot real? <laughs> is Bigfoot real? <laughs> That's what I don't want to know. Is Bigfoot real? Lucas, what do you think? I think I, th- I think it could be real. I kind of want to just type real quick and, and publish one just I'm you know, yes. for the second. Valentino. <laughs> I'm going to vote for yes. Chuck? Sure, I'll say yes as well. Yes, you're right. Bigfoot is real. My next, <laughs> got, I've got more. Is there a real gem called Girlfriend? Is Girlfriend a real gem? That sounds like something somebody would do. Let's create a gem called Girlfriend. So I'm going to say yes. Dan Latino? I'm going to also say yes. Lucas? I think that maybe there once was, but similar to Factory. There girl, still is. It's now You're all right. Girlfriend. It's true. <laughs> yep, there is a real gem called Girlfriend. But is there a real gem called Boyfriend? I hope so. <laughs> I, I really hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Valentino, yes or no? I mean, I'm going to say there's a uh, a gem for every single word in the dictionary. Uh-huh. So you're saying yes. Lucas, what do you think? I really hope so. I'm, I'm going to go with yes, just because that's what, what I would like it to be. I'm going to say yes. You're all wrong. There is no boyfriend's gem. There is only a girlfriend gem. And for my final question, because this segment has gone on for far too long, yeah. uh, the the modical thing we're talking about today, which is in the prototypes repository, which is linked in the article, uses a gem called Noko Gumbo, which I'd never <laughs> seen before, which I believe has been folded into the main Noko Giri gem. So it has. Oh, there is a real gem called Noko Girl, G A R L, which was an Aaron Patterson gem, which is probably abandoned by now. But is there a Noko Boy gem? So there's a Noko. Gumbo gem, there's a Noko girl gem, but is there a Noko boy gem? Lucas? No, I'm thinking no. Valentino? I'm going to also say no. Chuck? Of course there is. Yeah, well, uh, it's two out of three, I'm afraid. There is no Noko boy gem, but there is a Noko girl gem, thanks to Aaron Batson. So that's, this ends the real or fake gem challenge <laughs> back to your scheduled programming. Yeah, so about that, I think... We decided to open source all the stuff, and we looked up uh, Monocle and couldn't find anything about it. 
on GitHub. Mm. And so, you know, we thought we were good, made a gem, and then we were trying to publish the gem, and it seemed to work locally, and then we installed it, and it we got all sorts of strange errors. And yeah, it turns out there's, <laughs> there's this old gem called... Uh, <laughs> Monocle. It's it's not on GitHub. It it's it's before GitHub's time, I think. So we thought we oh, would wow. rename it to Lornet because that's kind of a synonym. But yeah, time constraints and <laughs> eventually just said, let's just push the whole thing. And uh, if the if a lot happens with this uh, with this project, we can we can rename it later. <laughs> hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast. And you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing with top end devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to top end devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv. And I renamed it to top end devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. I will say that is, uh, I've tried to be using uh, Monocle for real, and it is a little bit tricky to get working. It says it needs Ruby 2.5. Do you know if it works with 2.7 or not? I'm not entirely sure. I know that the test suite for ERB to Builder uh, didn't work with modern the, the, with the latest version, and since Monocle depended on that, and we were publishing them at the same time, I mentioned I, I put in the two point five. That, that's what I've been testing it on. The project was kind of on hold for a year and a half there, so that's that's what it used to run on. I haven't really tested it on later Rubies yet. It doesn't work on my amazing cutting edge three point one point two Apple Silicon Mac thing. But it does work if you're not a weirdo like me and you just use RBMB and run the version of Ruby specified and use bundle installed and it works fine. Okay, cool. And But you actually did get it to run locally then? Yeah, it's, it's on active support 5.2.2, which is a trip down memory lane. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. So are are you looking at bringing it up to Ruby 2.7 or 3.0, Hmm. So the the no code platform, the visual editor, that's kind of on hold, uh, has been mm-hmm. for quite a while. I think between the how how big of a project it is and it being kind of difficult to sell, like if, if I'm talking to developers, they can kind of sell them on it, but they're usually not the ones who sign the sign the deals. I think it would need VC funding, and I didn't really... When I started the project, I was open to that. Uh, and then a few years down, I had some personal stuff going on, and I'm kind of mm-hmm. not as open to it. So the pro- project is kind of in, in in this weird state. And it bugged me that it was just sitting in a repo on my computer forever. So that's that's why I open-sourced it and published it. And I, I hope to do something with it at some point, but I'm not actively working on it. So uh, for now, it, it will remain active support 5.0. Mm. but yeah 
So I'd like to circle back to our, our AST topic. Because <laughs> I'm curious how how you're using, you know, the parser gem and the AST tree to to match on things and to, you know, to generate the code that you want from it. Because I've played with some ASTs and parsers before. And, you know, I'm definitely curious how and what, like what made you decide to go down that route versus just like, I, I don't know, just like a template, pure template. I think it was like a, a decade ago, I I was big into the whole, well, longer than a decade ago, I was big into the whole why the lucky stiff uh, weird cult thing. <laughs> And all of the strange Ruby art, art kind of art, artistic-seeming uh, projects. And then a few years later, I had to rewrite like 125 Sinatra apps. <laughs> I'm sorry, 125 Sinatra apps. Yeah, that, that was this company. It was kind of cool. They they uh, served that they did. They worked for publishers, like for a lot of big newspapers and magazines. And they had a very strange architecture that was extremely stable even though nobody will believe that that was a good idea but we developed on the servers we deployed using vimdiv it was all the strangest practices but it was an extremely stable system how many heroku's is a is 125 snarch apps is that like a two micro heroku's it's one single passenger No, so there was one basic app, but then all these clients wanted slight modifications, and so yeah, they they just cloned the cloned the app for each customer and then made changes. I think an older version of the same platform was one giant code base for all customers, and that was a enormous mess to maintain. And so that's why they went with this. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, at some point, we needed to make a change to all of the applications for security reasons or something. And uh, yeah, so I. We did something with regular expressions and said and awk, but I was starting to look into, can we actually parse it and work with that? And got super impressed with just how powerful ASTs are. I guess my background is weird. I think usually you learn this stuff in university and then forget about it and become a, like a proper coder. But I didn't go to uni or college or anything like that. So I just started coding. And then when I was already kind of built up, built up some experience, then I learned about ASTs and my mind was blown. That kind of always stuck. So a few years later, when I was thinking about doing a startup, I thought, wow, uh, with AST, she could do something more than what I've seen so far. Which, from a business point, is maybe starting with a solution looking for a problem. Not not the best <laughs> idea, but an interesting library came from it. So that's something. <laughs> so I think you wanted to get back into the how the parsing worked, right? Yeah, I'm curious just how, how, you, took, how you approached uh you know, first, like reading through the, so you have have basically you know an ERB loader that you read from a file that loads the template and gives it the metadata that it needs, and then how are you then turning that kind of raw text from the file into an AST node tree? Are you talking about uh, parsing ERB templates? Parsing uh, the result from it. Ah, uh, right. So we don't actually use ERBs. We have our own weird format. That's the uh, the the monocles and the snippets. So that's a DSL, and then it contains the a, a string like a multi-line string with the code. And then, where in ERB you would use interpolations with that whole less than percent sign uh, syntax, mm-hmm. uh, we do something else. We just use the word placeholder and then put the name of the placeholder. So, for if you wanted to interpolate the class name, we would say uh, the class name will be placeholder 
uh, name, for example, camel cased. Or if you want to interpolate the uh, variable name, you would just use the variable name placeholder, uh, whatever my variable is. And then you, a- after you define the toad, like the, like the template, uh, you then, for each each placeholder, define how it's supposed to be parsed and how it's supposed to be generated. And for the simple cases, it kind of looks like maybe type annotations and a data path. So, so is the AST relatively easy to work with in order to do this kind of uh, interpolation and parsing? Relatively. We started out, before we had Monocle, we did everything with lots of if statements. If this type of node, then do that action else that this type of node do that action. And that became very painful to work with. And we didn't really see it as a possibility to build a whole product product with that. So that's kind of how we got onto Monocle. The thing about the Monocle is that the default is to just compare the AST, AST nodes of the template and of whatever you're trying to parse, which means you don't have to write logic for most code. It's only when you in the spots where you want to actually interpolate something that you need to do something. I guess. Yeah. And this this ties in with this idea of this kind of visual editor. So correct me if I'm wrong, but the way this works is you've got to have a template before you start using Monocle. But the reason you have this template is that so that you can only alter the bits of the code you need to alter. So with the visual editor, for example, you don't kind of want your colleagues messing with all of the code down the bottom of the class, but you do want them to be able to edit these particular things in the class. So you expose the editing of those bits of the class through the template in Monocle, and then the rest stays the same. Yes. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it it keeps it the same. And then also we use a source updater, which uh, let's say that you've made some changes through a Monocle and you want to save those to the original file. It'll take the Ruby code in the original file and the the changed version, and it'll compare the ASTs, and it will only write out new Ruby code for uh, the parts where the AST actually changed. So that way you can preserve all the formatting of the code and comments. And then we also look at if there are comments in the code that we would delete or that would be moved around. And for those cases, we kind of have a bunch of heuristics for what to do. Uh, And if we actually delete a comment, we don't. If the updater wants to delete a comment, it doesn't actually delete it. It just says this should probably be deleted because the underlying code was removed by uh, Monocle. If that makes sense, it so comments how, the comments. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was just going to ask how do, how does it handle conflicts? Right. Like if two people are changing the same thing, uh, th- does the ASC know that like how to handle that case? It handles them poorly. Or not at all right now. <laughs> it's, um, I think the idea that we had was to generate a hash of the whole code base and send that to the client. And then the client, when it does edits, can send along the hash. And if it doesn't match anymore, then we know there's a conflict and we should just display a warning or an error or something. But yeah, that's we never got around to that. We built it just enough so that we could make the demo video and not lie. <laughs> so this code's actually running in production, right? Uh, no. No? It, no, no. Oh, it never actually got released, your visual code editor? No, we, we made that demo video. Oh, okay. That's that's about as far as we got. I mean, this is really cool. I'm, even if it's not in production, right? Like, there, yeah. there's clearly some value, right? So I'm, I'm just curious, kind of, where were you planning to, where's the trajectory of this 
headed, even if it's not going to be continued under, you know, this particular thing for you, like what, what did you foresee some of the future of, of where the direction of it was heading? Cause I, I have a bunch of ideas, but I'm just curious where you particularly saw it. Yeah, what I was hoping for was like a like a type of SaaS platform or maybe a local editor. But either way, you hook it into your GitHub repo. It grabs all the code, makes it edit- editable for people without tech skills. Maybe a coder can define a, like a kind of advanced configuration to say, you know, they can users can be allowed to edit these parts of the code, but not those parts because they're tricky and I don't want to have to deal with it. Uh, when they break it. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, just the ability for someone non-technical to create tables, models, controllers, views, add fields, validations, uh, links between forms and tables. Uh, just all of the all this, of the stuff where as a developer, you're kind of like, I have to build this again, really? That, that kind of stuff? <laughs> but then, in, uh, and then it just, yeah, it creates pull requests or maybe you allow them to commit straight to some branch. And at the same time, if coders want to modify those files, they can. And provided that those changes are not too complicated, or maybe we give some, maybe we have some linter that says, look, if you're going to add this method in this location, you can, but the editor won't understand what's anywhere. So this means that users can't edit it anymore. Something along those lines, maybe. But yeah, that's that's about as far as I've um, uh, dreamed about it, I guess. <laughs> This this reminds me a lot of like a a visual Gherkin, right? Like for for those not familiar, Gherkin was a text based uh, mm-hmm. language that allowed you to just write plain sentences and have it run, you know, some executables based on that, which turned into Cucumber of a gem, where you can then execute tests based on those sentences. So the idea being, you know, a business person could write up the acceptance criteria of a particular story and the developer could go in and implement it against those tests and make sure that they passed uh, the criteria. I see that kind of Rails viewer that you have, editor, kind of as that uh, an extrapolation of that, right, where you have somebody business-wise going in and they want to kind of flesh out some details of how something should kind of, how they visualize it working uh, and having a developer come in and kind of get it working how it should be working right. uh, a little bit, right? Because <laughs> a lot of it is just getting generated, which is pretty awesome. But I, I see this as like a great like test generation tool, right? Like, you know, being able to go in and, you know, write like a, a yeah. Gherkin-esque yeah, test well, file Oscar. and just having something generate the test. And if you need to go in and tweak something for... A specific thing. It seems like it's set up to to handle that pretty good. So I'm yeah. curious, like, what what lessons did you like grab out of this and like put to use in maybe other jobs or code that that you've done since? Right? Uh, have Have you been able to use any of these like AST building or source update or anything like that to apply somewhere else? And how did you do that? Not yet. Not really. Small bits, like uh, a while ago, I re- released this tiny gem called Recent Ruby, which you can put in your CI pipeline and it'll make your builds fail if you're trying to use an outdated Ruby version. So for that, I wanted to parse the uh, Ruby version files, I forget what they're called, uh, mm-hmm. and also the gem files, which which contain the, the Ruby version. So I used the same, some of the same ideas there, but I, I haven't really 
used the concepts too much outside of this yet. But I like the idea that you mentioned about like generating tests. That's an interesting one. We've thought about Active Admin that has a pretty well-structured configuration file, but it is pretty big. And if you uh, expose that through a visual editor, that yeah, a business person is going to know what they want to be able to edit and the dashboards that they want. So why not just let them build it themselves? Also thought about maybe telephony because I think asterisk is a thing. I'm not sure if that's still mm-hmm. a thing or if Twilio just kind of replaced it. I haven't looked at asterisk for a while, but the use cases are different enough to where I could see somebody wanting to set up something like it. Right. But yeah. yeah. One of the other projects I caught my eye, which is in this area uh, under the Snooty software banner, was the text tractor system, which is a similar idea. And this leapt out at me because I'm, I'm working on a multilingual code base at the moment, which is English, French, and Arabic. Right. So it's got a kind of right-to-left mix. It's got loads of Unicode in there. And the idea of a tool, the Textractor, what it does is it takes your ERB templates, yes, and it intelligently replaces all the strings which should be translated with calls to the I1AMT function. So instead of having to go through manually all of your kind of, you know, English ERB templates and manually identify all the strings, it will actually kind of do that for you and wrap them in a T function. And, uh, oh, the hours, (laughs) the hours you could save by using this gem is incredible. And this also uses the same kind of AST approach, correct? Yeah, it uses that same ERB to builder library. So the same thing that lets Monocle edit ERB templates is is used for this. Uh, I think we used it for this first, actually. Yeah, so we have this weird parser called it ERB to Builder, and that's basically the engine that this runs on. So that can convert an ERB template into a type of AST, and then we walk the whole tree, and everywhere where we see strings that look like probably they should be internationalized, uh, re- replace them with a T call, and we put the original string in a locale file. So that one we actually try to uh, sell as a as a SaaS. As it turns out, the frustration that you're going through right now it is kind of common, but it doesn't happen very often, and it's very very difficult to sell. People tend to not really. People need to remember that this exists by the time they're running into this problem again, which is not all that often, I think. So. Commercially not a success, but yeah, I have on my to-do list to just publish the code there so that, yeah. (laughs) Well, I thought it was very cool. And it is, I think if if more people were aware that it exists, then I think it it would be a very useful tool because there are huge numbers of uh, Rails apps out there where people are like, wow, now we're going to do it in Europe, you know, and now it needs to work in 10 languages. And uh, I think it's definitely a value proposition but it's the first time I'd come across it. Right. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. It's It's been in the Ruby Weekly newsletter a few years back when it came out, and people were kind of interested in it. But then, you know, we'd built the prototype and pushed it out some more and had very little results. And then we called a bunch of translation agencies and were like, hey, is this something that your customers might have a use for? And I said, yeah, maybe if it also supports .NET and Java and Python and everything. And yeah, we kind of, <laughs> mm. so yeah but yeah I I at the very least I kind of want to just 
put the code on GitHub because ERB to Builder is on GitHub and the thing that does text directory is basically one file. So I can at least put them out there, but uh, tying them together and making it work properly with a recent Rails version is probably a bit of a struggle to get it all to work. But Which, if any listeners are interested in doing that, <laughs> definitely yeah. contact me. I'll send all of the Git, <laughs> Git repo. <laughs> How do people get a hold of you? They can DM me uh, on Twitter at like just yeah, my name will be in the show notes, I'm guessing. Yeah, we'll and we'll put a link to your Twitter as well. Right. Or they can email me at Lucas at snootysoftware.com. Nice. <laughs> so you mentioned being uh you know, wanting to express creativity kind of with this and, and you know, hack hack together something that you find useful, right? What else are you working on? I'm I'm curious to to know what's what's new in your playground. Yeah, sadly, very little. <laughs> I'm doing some freelance work. I uh, after the whole snooty software thing, I want to do a like a bootstrapped company. Want to give it another try anyway. But this time, start with a, a customer demand. So I'm I'm just doing market research. I'm calling different companies or walking over and asking them questions about how they do their work. So from a technical standpoint, not a lot of interesting stuff happening here right now. I do well, what would you want to do? Security research, but. What would you want to do if you if you found some time? Yeah, security research is one of them. I kind of wonder if there's tools like uh, Breakman, uh, like basically static analysis. Mm-hmm. I think maybe something like Monocle might work there, but for a little more, more complex code. So yeah, some ideas there that I'd like to try out. And there's this tool. Uh, it's really cool. It's called SourceGraph. It has all of GitHub's public repositories, and you can search there, search the entire code base of everything. Uh, and they have this kind of DSL for searching uh, based on the AST as well. But I had a hard time understanding how it worked and how to write queries for it. So something that I would like to do is basically build that, but for Ruby and make it extra easy for Ruby developers. Uh, so, for example, um, those translation calls, when you, when you, when you call i18n.t, you can... This, the the key that you pass, if you add underscore HTML to the end, it won't escape the translated value. And there's some potential for XSS there if you do it improperly. So that would be interesting to like programmatically search for all cases where that happens. And that's the kind of stuff I would like to do if I had nothing but time. And or if I also had like a bunch of money, I would just build out the visual real editor again. I guess. <laughs> Are you are you releasing i one eight n zero days on Ruby Rogues? <laughs> I uh, is that against policy or <laughs> no, no? That's that's very very awesome. No, it's it's just something that I've seen that like uh, clients code bases that sometimes kind of goes wrong or almost goes wrong. It's I don't have any specific zero days in mind. It's just something that I saw when I was doing security reviews for customers that that makes me think that probably there is some code out there that has that issue but maybe with the newer rails versions it's less of a big deal but that will be really cool though to release a zero day on a podcast we um we did have it with ruby gems a few weeks ago really (laughs) (laughs) yeah all right well should we uh get to our picks Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, 
I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. We're going to move on to the next segment of the show. We're going to do picks. Valentino, do you want to start us off? Sure. On the topic of Ruby Gem security, the Ruby Central organization just announced uh, a partnership with Shopify, which is really cool, called Ruby Shield. I'm really excited to see what will come from that. But basically, the goal is to firm up security around the tooling and ecosystem surrounding Ruby and Ruby Gem releases. Really cool stuff happening there. I'll post a, a link to kind of the announcement of that and uh, ch- check out all the details. Pretty incredible uh, team up there. My next pick, one of my coworkers, Mark Brouch, he, he gave this great talk on, on JavaScript on basically how at Doximity we use machine learning with some of our JavaScript to take away the background on video calls. So we do a bunch of other stuff related to machine learning and JavaScript. And he gave this great talk at a conference in Budapest. So check that out. That's it for me. All right, Luke. I got so many picks for you. All right. My first pick is something Lucas has done, which is the foot pedals. Now, uh, just to explain Lucas, about two years ago, I was talking about programming with foot pedals because it's something I do, right? I, I like to use my feet to operate my computer. It's not because I have any kind of uh, RSI or anything. I just like doing it. It feels natural and good. I work with a guy who'd actually been in a motorcycle accident and lost the use of his right hand. So I made him a foot pedal so he could hit the shift key and it evolved from there. And But you have done something far more advanced than that and you've made a video on it and put some code up. So that's great. The other cool thing I found, which is quite old from 2020, is a guy, Gray Kelly, explaining how to do pagination and scroll restoration with turbo links without JavaScript uh, in the kind of SPA context. It's a series of two blog posts. It's really interesting if you dabble in front end and on the kind of turbo hotware stuff, and that's brilliant. I bought the the uh, ebook Ruby on Rhoda, and I recommend that. But my highlight of the picks this week is Hakon Lee, the inventor of CSS, his PhD thesis where he explains how and why he invented CSS is still available online. And one of the questions I always wondered is, why doesn't CSS have variables, right? Because I always end up having to go to SAS or something something awful to do with this kind of CSS variables as a build step. And if you read his PhD thesis, which was released in 2006, he will explain why CSS does not have variables. And it's because the initial version of CSS called CHSS did have variables and they got turned into pseudo classes when CSS was proposed. Unless you've uh, 
suffered a lot on front-end development that might not be interesting for you but to me it's absolutely fascinating to read how and why css came about so there's my it's too many picks isn't it chuck it's got a little of picks all right that's my picks awesome i'm gonna throw out some picks i usually pick a board or card game and i'm gonna pick one called just one it's a card game uh board game geek weight is 1.05 on a scale of one to five that's very low that's it is low. very low it is a very simple game. You have these little stands and you take turns putting a card in front of you facing the rest of the players. You pick a number between one and five that determines what word you're trying to guess. They all write down just one word on the back of their stand. You close your eyes. They turn their stands around. Any duplicates get removed. You use the rest of the clues. You try and guess the word. And as a group, if you guess the majority of the 13 cards, then you win. That's the game. That's why it's a 1.05. It's really simple. But it's one of those, it's one of those word thinking games. And so it's, it's fun because it's a challenge to think up a word that somebody else isn't going to pick, right? Cause you don't want to go with the really, really obvious ones. If you have a, a older kid or a younger teenager, a lot of times you kind of let them pick those words and then you, pick the other ones or you know use cultural context you can use a word you can use a number and you can use symbols so one of the words was hollywood and my sister-in-law's name is holly and so somebody actually drew an arrow pointing at her right for one of the clues and so you can put, you, you can put them all together and 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 make the guess so anyway that's what i'm going to pick for that i've also been watching 1883 which is a spin-off of yellowstone i really like it I, I liked Yellowstone a lot. It's funny because it's it's just horrible people doing horrible things to other horrible people. Yellowstone is 1883 I think is going to be different. I'm only an episode in, but I'm really I really dug it the the uh, introductory episode. So, I'm going to pick that. I think I heard a rumor that there was another spin-off of Yellowstone that was going to come out, and I think they're doing a season 5, but I haven't looked to see if it's out yet either. But I'm I'm really digging this one, so I'm gonna en- I'm gonna enjoy the rest of that, and then I just want to let folks know I'm probably gonna have to postpone Rails uh, Remote Conf into September. But yeah, we're gonna have DHH come speak. I've got four or five other speakers lined up at this point, but I need a few more, and I still haven't quite gotten all the kinks ironed out in the system so that I can add them. And I haven't talked to my co-hosts on this show, for example, and and stuff like that. So. We'll get it all figured out, probably do it in September. And yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be a lot of fun. And it's going to be more of a, I'm trying to split the difference between the online conference where you just show up and listen to talks and where you can actually do some interaction. So we're going to have uh, sponsor booths where you can go talk to the sponsors over video. And we're also going to have tables during the entire conference where you can come and sit down and virtually join a table and do video talk with other people because i feel like the hallway track is one of the most important parts of a conference it's a great way to meet people it's a great way to find a new job it's a great way to figure out what other people are doing these days and so i want to kind of create that as well and then finally uh, and so anyway all of the conferences are going to be at uh, topendevs.com slash conferences we're also doing one for javascript all the major front-end frameworks, probably some mobile stuff and some career stuff for conferences. And the same thing for meetups. And so we're going to be doing meetups over the next month or two. I'm going to get a bunch of those going. One of them will be Ruby and Rails focused. I think another one's going to be a book club. And so we'll we'll pick a programming book and, and read through it. 
So if you're interested in that, go to topendevs.com slash meetups. And that's what I've got as far as what we're doing here. Uh, Lucas, what are your picks? I'm blanking a little bit. So I'm lagging behind with the news a little bit, the Ruby news. So I just mm-hmm. found out that Shopify was uh, hiring like a bunch of PhDs, I think, like who are top in their field to work on Ruby, like on the garbage collector. And it's someone who's super good at garbage collectors. And there's a bunch of... Oh, cool. Yeah. So I'm kind of excited about that. Inspired by your uh, your pick about uh, the 1883, I'm watching The White Lotus and really enjoying it. It's also horrible people doing horrible things. I think that's mostly it for me. All right, cool. Do you want to let people know where to reach you? I mean, we kind of already talked about like DM on Twitter, but it, you know, any other way that you want people to contact you if they have questions about this or think it's cool? Yeah, ideally just email me at uh, lucas at snootysoftware.com. Other than that, not so much. I don't publish a lot. I'm not very active on, on the social medias, so it's simple. Okay. All right, good deal. Well, thanks for coming. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. All right. And folks, until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.